The Palmers returned to Cleveland the next day, and the two families at Barton were again left to entertain each other. But this did not last long. Eleanor had hardly got their last visitors out of her head. I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week, we're looking at chapters 21 to 25 of Sense and Sensibility. And as usual, we're going to start with 100-word summaries of the chapters. Do you want to go first? All right, I'll go first, yes. The Miss Steeles arrive to stay with the Middletons. They ingratiate themselves with Lady Middleton by praising and ministering to her children. Lucy Steele reveals in secrecy to Eleanor that she has been engaged to Edward Ferrers for four years. A verbal fencing match between the two follows, with Lucy trying to provoke Eleanor into some reaction of dismay, disbelief or disapproval, while Eleanor preserves a calm pretense that the news does not affect her personally. The Steeles continue at Barton for two months. Mrs Jennings invites Eleanor and Marianne to stay with her in London and Marianne persuades her mother to let them accept the invitation. Okay, you focused a little bit more on some things than I did. So mine was Sir John and Mrs Jennings randomly meet Anne and Lucy Steele in Exeter and discovering them to be relations, invite them to stay. Lucy reveals to Eleanor that she and Edward are secretly engaged, swearing Eleanor to secrecy. Eleanor is devastated, but is sorry for Edward. She realises he is trapped and won't be able to be happy with Lucy. The Steeles stay at Barton for two months, over Christmas, and in the new year Mrs Jennings invites Eleanor and Marianne to go to London with her. Eleanor is doubtful, but Marianne is entranced by the possibility of seeing Willoughby. I think those two fitted together well because we each focused on something a bit different. Yes, you spent more time on the Eleanor and Lucy debate. the Eleanor and Lucy debate is something that I've got totally fascinated by. Okay. One thing that struck me reading these chapters, though it's kind of, I've been aware of it before, and it comes to the bit about choosing a favourite sentence, is the sentence structure in in this book. They feel to me, every time I'm looking for a favourite sentence, that there are so many long sentences divided by semicolons, which I don't remember having so much of in Pride and Prejudice. So I actually did a word count on them. And as far as I can tell, and this is pretty rough because I use some fairly basic calculations, but Sense and Sensibility has about 3,968 sentences and Pride and Prejudice has... 4,471. That's based on sentences ending in a full stop. Yes. But of those sentences, Sense and Sensibility has 1,572 uses of a semicolon, Mm. whereas Pride and Prejudice only has 1,538, which basically means that Sense and Sensibility has many more compound sentences than Pride and Prejudice. I don't quite know why, whether it's editorial or whether it's her writing style that she honed a bit before Pride and Prejudice or what, but I personally think it's probably as she develops more of her own style. I mean, those long sentences are lovely. Yes. And some of the best ones are those yes. long sentences. But they have this very Johnsonian tone, don't they? The balance and all that mm. sort of thing. Yeah. And I think she's just actually developing a narrative style where she is using language that isn't quite as measured and as what I'm calling a Johnsonian. Mm. 
as the earlier ones. That's my feeling about it. Yeah. The reason this struck me is so often coming into a section, I thought I've remembered a sentence and thought that would be a really good one to have as a favourite sentence. Yeah. And then when I get to it, I realise it's part of a bigger compound sentence, which quite easily could have been separated by a full stop, not a semicolon. But yes. that was just the style she was using at that stage. Yes. So in terms of content, let's start with the beginning of the section and the invitation of the Miss Steeles to Barton Park because it's really quite surprising in that they just apparently bump into these people in Exeter, discover them to be relations, presumably because Mrs Jennings starts talking about people or something, and on the basis of that, on the basis of a very short acquaintance, they invite them to stay. It actually says... Lady Middleton was thrown into no little alarm on the return of Sir John by hearing that she was very soon to receive a visit from two girls whom she had never seen in her life and of whose elegance, whose tolerable gentility even, she could have no proof. Which, you've got a kind of feel for Lady Middleton on there. It's like in Pride and Prejudice with Mr Bennett not telling Mrs Bennett that he's invited Mr Collins to stay. This brings up one of the things I did want to talk about again, which I think I've already mentioned, is Lady Middleton's concern for having gentility, being well-bred. And I just sort of wonder, did she go to a fancy boarding school where there was perhaps the mistress and some of the more glamorous girls went on and on about being genteel, being well-bred, and she's taken that on, Mm. and that's her rejection of her mother. She has these rules, and this is what you're supposed to do. Mm. It's something she's picked up. Mrs Palmer hasn't got it. Mrs Jennings hasn't got it. It could be not so much at school, but after she married Sir John, when she became the preeminent lady in the neighbourhood, she may have adopted it herself at that point. I have a feeling that somebody's taught her the rules. Uh I have a feeling that somebody has given her a book of etiquette of this is what you do and this is what you don't do. Mm. And it probably comes, well, who knows? Because after all, she's Jane Austen's invention. She never lived. On the subject of Lady Middleton, I've been thinking about what you were saying in some of our previous episodes where you were saying Jane Austen is so down on Lady Middleton, but you actually don't think she's really that bad. So I was trying to work out why is it? And I think the big distinction is that compared to Colonel Brandon, Lady Middleton has no interest or care for anyone else except her children. So she's only following the rules for fear of being ungenteel. Whereas Colonel Brandon, and I'm thinking back to that moment when Mrs Jennings and Sir John are teasing Eleanor and Marianne and Lady Middleton makes an observation about the weather because she doesn't like the tone of the conversation. Whereas Colonel Brandon immediately joins in this discussion because he can feel for the the sufferance of the joke. (laughs) So for her, it's coming from the rules of manners and from him, it's coming from genuine kindness. And I think it's, again, this thing about... The social rules are important, but they're important as a reflection of a deeper ethical and moral and humanitarian position. And some people, like Lady Middleton, they only have this surface and they think that's all there is. That's been exactly my reading of Lady Middleton. Lady Middleton has no conception that true gentility means being a perfect gentle knight, concerned with other people's feelings, always wanting to be honourable, that that's the deepness of it. Yeah. And the rules are just conventions people copy. Yeah. And they usually copy them from their heart. Mm. But somebody else has turned them into this rule book. 
I think that's the difference, but I don't hold that all that much against Lady Middleton. She's maybe not all that nice a person. When it comes to protecting her own interests, she's really passive-aggressive when she says to Lucy, I am glad, said Lady Middleton to Lucy, that you are not going to finish poor little Anna Maria's basket this evening, for I am sure it must hurt your eyes to work filigree by candlelight. (laughs) And then she talks about how I'm sure little Anna Maria will cope with it. So that's not... Perhaps I'm just thinking of poor Lady Middleton, you know, this person who doesn't really know what to do, except she doesn't like what her mother does. Yes. What should she be doing? Mm. And then, you know, the one genuine thing she has is she cares about her children. Mm. And she'll be as devious as this, <laughs> which is not it is deviousness that fools anyone <laughs> yeah. to mm. get Lucy to do it. Yes. Yeah. What I'd like to say about the children is it's just this fantastic picture and very well observed of the awful way the children that are indulged can go you get a picture of the dreadful things they did to the miss steels <laughs> as though the children are trying to see how far they can go you know they go into their work boxes their sashes untied their hair pulled about their ears their work bags searched and their knives and scissors stolen away i just think she's just creating this wonderful picture It's like her early wonderful quick picture back in the first chapter when she describes why Norland was left to the little grandnephew. But as well as creating this wonderful picture, she doesn't hold back in being critical of both the parents and the children. Oh, yes. I also love the description when the Miss Steeles present themselves as so dotingly fond of the children. It says, Fortunately for those who pay their court through such foibles, A fond mother, though in pursuit of praise for her children, the most rapacious of human beings, is likewise the most credulous. Her demands are exorbitant, but she will swallow anything. She's very, very critical of these doting mothers who spoil their children. Oh, yes, there's no doubt about that. And, of course, you know, I think it's very sad you've got the poor Miss Steeles. They arrive absolutely determined to let these frightful children... (laughs) Do whatever they wanted to yes. and keep on saying how lovely they are, how sweet they are. Well, they probably have to do that anywhere they stay where there are children. Basically, they're doing what they have to to, to earn their living. Yeah, to keep a roof over their heads. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then perhaps we come to sort of what seems to me the absolutely central bit, which is Eleanor's reaction to Lucy's revelation and I really find it so difficult to call it what Eleanor does sense I don't disapprove of what Eleanor's doing Mm. but it's not sense in the sense that we've talked about it before of living by the conventions of society this is just Eleanor absolutely defending her privacy and her self-respect there's absolutely no way she is going to let Lucy know she feels a thing and she talks around it and she controls herself and she keeps it down and she's smart. Lucy lays quite a lot of trails for her. Mm. She says, well, what do you think I should do? And Eleanor says, oh, I, I wouldn't choose to make... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't presume to, to, do. to tell you what to do. And then Eleanor also, when it looks as though Lucy wants to keep going, She refuses to talk about it anymore. Mm. She picks it up the second time because she wants to hammer it home to Lucy. She doesn't care. She really doesn't care. Yeah. And then after that, she is so quiet about it. Mm. Although if we're talking sense in terms of following the social conventions, 
on the surface, everything in that conversation on both sides is completely civil and elegant. And, and elegant. But at the same time, they both know what the other is saying. Lucy is hoping, I think, to get a rise out of her, which she doesn't. And that's Eleanor's absolute determination. Yes. Is that... that, I think, is also where the term Jane Austen uses several times in the book is self-command. As oh, Eleanor. Eleanor. That, that is Eleanor displaying her self-command in her conversations with Lucy. So it's really admiring her control. I think she's legitimate with that. The one thing that irritated me with her attitude to Eleanor, and this was to do comparing Eleanor and Marianne, where she does that sort of little finger-pointing thing where Marianne refuses to play cards, but Eleanor sort of finds a polite way. And so she says... Eleanor joyfully profited by the first of these proposals and thus by a little of that address which Marianne could never condescend to practice gained her own end and pleased Lady Middleton at the same time. (laughs) But again, that's not really so much boosting Eleanor as having another go at Marianne. Well, it's kind of, you've got the two extremes. You've got Lucy and Anne at one end who are so so determined to please Lady Middleton in every way and at the other extreme you've got Marianne who doesn't give a toss and just does I'm going to go to the piano because I hate cards. Eleanor is sitting in between she's not rocking the boat socially but (laughs) (laughs) these are the chapters where up until now we've had kind of evenness between Marianne and Eleanor with maybe a little bit more leaning towards more stuff is happening for Marianne with Willoughby but this is where Eleanor suddenly becomes much more important There's these long paragraphs at the start of chapter 23 that describe Eleanor's thoughts. Mm. And when you sit down and read them, it really does encapsulate her emotion. Had Edward been intentionally deceiving her? Had he feigned a regard for her which he did not feel? Was his engagement to Lucy an engagement of the heart? No, whatever it might once have been, she could not believe it such at present. His affection was all her own. She could not be deceived in that. And then it goes through her processing what must have happened with Edward and how sorry she feels for him. And you do get her emotion, but maybe you don't quite get the sense of mourning mourning or loss that Jane Austen does capture so well in Persuasion when she's talking about Anne, but I think doesn't quite capture Eleanor's depth of emotion, possibly because it's all in these long descriptive paragraphs. In a way, though, also, it's her feeling of being poor Edward, poor Edward, not poor me. Yes. But also, we haven't been given almost enough material to know why she should be so sure that Edward is in love with her. Well, that, that's all those scenes we didn't get at Norland. And we were just told at Norland that they were becoming attached. We got no dialogue, we got no scenes of it. And so I think that's where the failure lies, Back there. Whereas with Marianne and Willoughby, well, Willoughby did enough. He overdid his affection for Marianne. Mm. Whereas Edward, we just haven't seen it. I suppose the other thing it might be worth just talking about briefly is her promise to Lucy not to tell anyone. It does say that she's actually kind of glad. The necessity of concealing from her mother and Marianne what had been entrusted in confidence to herself, though it obligated her to unceasing exertion, was no aggravation of Eleanor's distress. On the contrary, it was a relief to her. Lucy was taking a great big risk 
in saying that to Eleanor, mm. if Eleanor had been a bit different, if Eleanor had run to her mother and Marianne and then Mrs Jennings heard about it, she's taking a huge risk. But at the same time, Lucy's I mean, fairly good at reading people. I mean, that's what I thought immediately. Oh, she knows what Eleanor's like. But suppose Eleanor had burst out mm. or had felt she needed to tell her mother. Yeah, I think though she's even then she'd be relying on the gentility of the family. Perhaps she does believe in their being so genteel, yes. Mm. Oh, I did notice the, you can't call it foreshadowing because you don't necessarily pick it up at the time, but sort of laying the clues in advance for later when as part of the conversation with between Lucy and Eleanor, Lucy says, but Mrs Ferrers is a very headstrong, proud woman and in her first fit of anger upon hearing it, would very likely secure everything to Robert. Yes, so, yeah, yes. Lucy is very insightful, even with someone she hasn't even met. Yes. Maybe we should just talk briefly about the invitation to London. First of all is Marianne's awesome lack of self-awareness. Yes. When she says of Mrs Jennings, I have no such scruples, and I am sure I could put up with every unpleasantness of that kind with very little effort. <laughs> well, How she does not know herself. Well, no, perhaps she could put up with it. She'd just go out of the room, she'd say. <laughs> she doesn't care if people wanted to play cards. She says, no, I'm not playing cards. <laughs> After all, she does put up with going to the Middletons. But she's going to be trapped in a carriage with her for the whole trip to London. Yes. But the other thing about the trip to London, and this is something that I've always remembered from talking to Jane Austen, they comment on how Mrs Dashwood, when Eleanor and Marianne are given this invitation to London, Mrs Dashwood doesn't say, oh, you can't go and leave me alone with no one to talk to but Margaret. No, she she's 100% behind them going because she wants them to enjoy themselves. There's no noble self-sacrificing, oh, you go and have fun, you, you yes. go and enjoy yourself. No, it's it's completely enthusiastic and supportive and even comes up with all this stuff about you will find Margaret so improved when you come back yes. again and also that I have a little plan of alterations for your bedrooms too which may now be performed without any inconvenience to anyone. And again, I remember them saying in Talking of Jane Austen, that means it's almost certain that when they got back their bedrooms were total disaster area because it wasn't finished yes. <laughs> oh that also made me realize you remember earlier when we talked about barton cottage having four bedrooms and if yes. one is a guest room who is sharing with whom yes. well clearly eleanor and marianne each have their own bedroom because it says bedrooms in the plural so that yeah. means that either margaret is sharing with her mother or else they have a room each, but when Edward comes to stay, someone bunks up with someone else. Well, they probably, yes, move in together yeah. to make room. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if Margaret wasn't sharing with her mother. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was something that tended to happen a certain mm -hmm. amount. Yeah. Oh, just by way of comments, volume one of the three-volume version finishes after Lucy's revelation of the engagement. So after she's told Eleanor about the engagement, but before they've then had the the secondary conversation. So it, really? it finishes on this bombshell. Yes. Was there a gap in the publication of a three-volume novel? No. no, but there could be if, if you're getting from a lending library yes. or that some person is reading the second volume, I want to go on, but no, no, so-and-so's got the second volume. Mm. You give your favourite sentence. Well, again, I found a lot of sentences I liked, some of them long with semicolons, some of them not so long, but one of my favourites is... This is when Eleanor is talking to Lucy and Anne and they say how much they love lively children. And it says, I confess, replied Eleanor, that while I am at Barton Park, 
I never think of tame and quiet children with any abhorrence. <laughs> That's a little bit of goes on to persuasion. Yes. Remember at some stage yes, Lady Russell... La- Lady Russell says she, she must remember not to visit again during the Christmas holidays. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, well, I sort of started by thinking I'd choose one of those long Johnsonian ones, but I decided I'd take one of the ones where I think Eleanor is sort of so sharp. Lucy's just said she thought Eleanor was offended, and Eleanor replies... Offend me? How could you suppose so? Believe me. And Eleanor spoke it with truest sincerity. Nothing could be further from my intention than to give you such an idea. (laughs) Could you have a motive for the trust that was not honourable and flattering to me? (laughs) I mean, she's absolutely lying there. And and you sort of, you're completely behind her when she does it. The character we're talking about today is Lucy Steele, and maybe slightly by extension Anne Steele, but mostly Lucy. I thought before we start talking, I just might read out two descriptions from Jane Austen from the introductions of Lucy and Anne, because I think that leaves you in no doubt about the author's position on them, and I'm not entirely sure I always quite agree. When they first arrive, it says that the Dashwoods found in the appearance of the eldest, who was nearly thirty, with a very plain and not a sensible face, nothing to admire. But in the other, who was not more than two or three and twenty, they acknowledged considerable beauty. Her features were pretty, and she had a sharp, quick eye and a smartness of air, which, though it did not give actual elegance or grace, gave distinction to her person. Their manners were particularly civil, and Eleanor soon allowed them credit for some kind of sense when she saw with what constant and judicious attention they were making themselves agreeable to Lady Middleton. So that's the first one. And then the second one is specifically about Lucy. Lucy was naturally clever. Her remarks were often just and amusing, and as a companion for half an hour, Eleanor frequently found her agreeable. But her powers had received no aid from education. She was ignorant and illiterate, and her deficiency of all mental improvement, her want of information in the most common particulars, could not be concealed from Miss Dashwood, in spite of her constant endeavour to appear to advantage. Eleanor saw and pitied her for the neglect of abilities which education might have rendered so respectable, but she saw, with less tenderness of feeling, the thorough want of delicacy, of rectitude, and integrity of mind, which her attention, her assiduities, her flatteries at the park betrayed, and she could have no lasting satisfaction in the company of a person who joined insincerity with ignorance, whose want of instruction prevented their meeting in conversation on terms of equality, and whose conduct towards others made every show of attention and deference towards herself perfectly valueless. So she's really hypercritical of both of them. I think not just Eleanor, but also Jane Austen. But at the same time, I think she is painting a real picture that we can see more depth to them and I think maybe stop Lucy from being quite the 100% villain that say Fanny Dashwood is. I think we've got people whose society has put them in a pretty well intolerable position Mm. and they've got to try and do something about it and one of the things I even think is can you almost forgive them for their flattering and the way they go on they're earning their bread. So we do get this picture that obviously Lucy is much cleverer than Anne. Lucy is much prettier than Anne. Lucy can actually be an agreeable companion, but she's ignorant and illiterate. So on the one hand, it starts to seem like Eleanor feels that with a better upbringing, she could have been 
a better person. But then she goes on to talk about lack of integrity of mind joined insincerity with ignorance. I mean, I'm just interested that having set her up like that, some of the ways Jane Austen uses to make us see that we don't like her. One of the ones that got me was that she just has this one ungrammatical phrase, yes. which is, you was, and she says it four times. Yeah, she's not all that good with her verbs. She's trying too hard yes. to say things that come naturally yeah. to Eleanor. Looking at Lucy's engagement, when she was still... 1819 she could have been genuinely in love with Edward mm. I mean he would have been the most glamorous person she'd ever seen mm. they've been engaged for four years that happened one year after he left her uncle and he was with her uncle for four years so she's known him for nine years let's say she's 23 that means she was 14 when she first met Edward yes I would imagine initially he probably did seem very glamorous by the time they became engaged I'm not convinced it wasn't doing what Charlotte Lucas did. Charlotte Lucas basically manipulated Mr. Collins into proposing. Yes. Edward obviously is way more intelligent, etc., than Mr. Collins, though as Eleanor recognises, Edward, when he first got engaged to Lucy, he was still young himself. Very young, uh, yeah. After that, in the following four years, which again, referring to the footnotes in my Cambridge edition, says that would have been when he was at university. Yes. So suddenly he would have been exposed to a much greater range of people, a much higher level of conversation. Well, particularly if you look at Mr Pratt's school, he probably didn't have anything like the range of companions that he encountered at university. Yeah. And Lucy is intelligent. She reads people well. She flatters people well. Probably she did have a sense that if she was going to get Edward, she had to get him sooner rather than later. Yes. Would she make him a good wife? I actually think, by her own lights, yes. yes, she would. There is nothing to suggest she would be unfaithful to him. I think it's particularly noticeable that, unlike his family, she's not pushing him to do something he doesn't want to, except marry her, in that yes. she is actually very supportive of him entering the church. She says, my plan is that he should take orders as soon as he can, and then through your interest, which I am sure you would be kind enough to use out of friendship for him, and I hope out of some regard to me, your brother might be persuaded to give him the Norland living. So unlike all of Edward's family, she wants him to go into the church. That's what he wants. She can see that that's a good path for her. Mrs Jennings later on says that she's very good with money, so she will manage the household well. And she's clearly really good at sucking up to people who have livings to offer. So <laughs> in the same way, though, more proactively, perhaps, like Mr Collins and Lady Catherine, Say Sir John and Lady Middleton had a living. She yeah. would work towards it. And so I think by her own lights, she would be well, a good wife. Well, you know, she thinks probably that she could do more for him than somebody whose standards were a bit too high, like mm. Eleanor, who wouldn't be prepared to do the crawling yeah. that she'd be prepared to yeah. do. I'm not sure what sort of a pastoral role she'd have as the wife of a clergyman, but then that never comes out in Jane Austen anyway, whether the clergyman's wife has any kind of community role. I mean, they did. But... <laughs> well, I don't think that would necessarily be her strength. Eleanor says that Edward would be so unhappy with Lucy, and that is probably true. Yes. Because she wouldn't be a soulmate for him. But from her point of view, what she brings to the marriage is all this practical stuff. And she also, I guess, sees that as you said, she might help him get further ahead in the world as a clergyman, and she does 
support his desire to be a clergyman. She's not pushing him to join the army or any of the other things his family... No, she, she doesn't want to make him in any way grander than he is. Hmm. Well, I mean, being a clergyman's wife, she could be very useful. Yeah. Well, it would be a big step up for her, I would imagine. She's secure. Yeah. Well, as long as he's got a living, she's secure. Yeah. Then also, when she dumps him for Robert, well, it's just going for a promotion, basically. Yes. At the end of the day, she's out for herself, but who else is going to be out for her? Anne is not going to help her in any way. No. She's got no one but herself to look to, and if she can get Robert, and that's a better prospect. Well, by this stage, she's probably fed up with Edward because it's perfectly obvious that Edward is not any longer in love with her. Yeah. She's not a nice person. No. She's particularly not nice to Eleanor and she is very disingenuous in all of her conversations with Eleanor. But then so is is Eleanor in all her conversations with Lucy. I mean, admittedly, she has cause. (laughs) But you've got things like, she looked down as she said this, amiably bashful, with only one side glance at her companion to observe its effect on her. (laughs) So she can't help but be manipulative. One thing I do wonder is, when does she realise... Edward has fallen in love with Eleanor. She must have realised that his feelings for her had changed. But does she, until she arrives at Barton, know that he's fallen in love with Eleanor? Or does she only realise it when they start teasing Eleanor about Mr Ferrers? Possibly he's talked enough about them. I mean, he's open-hearted enough, Edward. So at the end of the day, Lucy wins. Yes. She gets the brother who's had a larger amount settled on him and she then manages to work her way around Mrs. Ferrers to get back into her good graces. So all of these things she's been doing all her life and building up her skills at, all her persuasion and her insincerity and her knowing how to flatter and who to flatter, it pays off for her. Anne is not going to get ahead the way Lucy did. What do you think would happen to Anne in the end? Whereas Eleanor and Marianne are really close and really love each other, she and Lucy have a more antagonistic relationship, but would Lucy completely abandon her when she gets no, married? No, look, she'd, she'd probably... Oh, other than she short-term abandons her when she runs off and leaves her with yes. nothing. But no, I, I, I think she'd have her around because she'd be useful. Mm-hmm. She could do all the sort of bits of Lucy's work that Lucy didn't like doing. She could look after the children. Yes, what she's used to. It. Yeah. To have her there, she would do all sorts of stuff that servants couldn't be expected to do. Mm. Lucy is definitely not a nice person. Anne is just not much fun to be with, but you kind of have to sympathise with them. Probably Anne more than Lucy, because Anne has more cards stacked against her. The Charlotte Lucas defence, what can this girl do? Yeah. What are her options? Mm. I think the biggest difference between Lucy Steele and Charlotte Lucas is that Charlotte Lucas is basically superior as a person to Mr Collins. Yes. You kind of feel... Surely Charlotte Lucas could have done better. Apparently she couldn't, so that was why she went for Mr Collins. Whereas Lucy Steele is not lowering herself. Lucy Steele is pulling herself up by her bootstraps. And she does a good job of it. She wins in the end. But I think that is the difference. Charlotte Lucas is not doing anyone else down to get Mr Collins because Elizabeth has already rejected him. Oh, maybe she's doing Mary down because Mr. Collins would have moved on to Mary. But he hadn't as yet, whereas Lucy knows that she has but, got but Edward not against... at the beginning. At the beginning, you feel that Lucy's probably more justified at the beginning. Mm. It's just that she wants to hang on to him. 
Yeah, she basically doesn't care about his feelings, even though she knows he probably wants out. Yeah. So at that point, she is getting her security at the expense of to someone else's. Yes. Whereas Charlotte Lucas is not getting her security at the expense of someone else. What I'm going to talk about this time is what childhood was like in the time when Jane Austen was writing Sense and Sensibility. But I thought I'd start by reading this passage that I'm very fond of, which comes from a book published in 1965 by Peter Laslett called The World We Have Lost. He was one of the very first people to try and work out what things were like in the past by looking at parish registers and that sort of thing. And this is part of what he said. We must imagine our ancestors, therefore, in the perpetual presence of their young offspring. A good 70% of all households contain children. This figure is remarkably constant from place to place and date to date, and there were between two and a half and three children to every household with them. Sometimes the numbers in these groups are five and above. In the pre-industrial world, there were children everywhere, playing in the village street and fields when they were very small, hanging round the farmyards and getting in the way until they were grown enough to be given child-sized jobs to do, thronging the churches, forever clinging to the skirts of women in the house, and wherever they went, and above all, crowding round the cottage fires. Another famous book, I think, a bit earlier, a French one by Philip Arias, which was translated as Centuries of Childhood. He was the one who came up with this idea that in the past, but he was talking about the Middle Ages, people didn't think of childhood as a separate phase. One of the things that Arias said that has hung around longest, I think, is the idea though how he would get the evidence from it, I don't know, is that when so many children died, people were a bit unwilling to get too fond of them. By the time we get to a sense and sensibility, there were obviously plenty of people who did get very fond of small (laughs) children. To put what happens in sense and sensibility in perspective, it's worth realising that there were two opposed theoretical views of what childhood was like. One of them was the strong evangelical one that children are born bad, that they've got original sin, that they're always going to be bad, they have to be repressed, they have to be taught, they have to be punished, which is a picture, but it was particularly well known and remembered from that period from a book by Mrs Sherwood called The Fairchild Family, mm-hmm. which was about these the three or four of them in the family who were terribly naughty. Children loved reading The Fairchild Family. <laughs> They're always naughty and then they get punished and then their father sort of reads them a little moral tune and they realise, yes, but we were born bad. We have to control ourselves. And then on the other hand, you've got sort of the most highfalutin form coming from Rousseau, that children are born good, children should be allowed to develop naturally. If you don't interfere with them, everything will go really well. And that was then picked up in another very popular book about Jane Austen's time called Sandford and Merton, which was about children who were allowed to do whatever they wanted to do and learn from their mistakes 
And so terrible things happen, like he wants to free his bird and nobody says to him, don't let the bird out of the cage. So he lets the bird out of the cage and the bird is happy and hops around the room and then the cat gets it. And so he learned from his mistake. Worse things than that happened, but that's a classic one. Mm. But that tradition was also taken up by Maria Urgeworth and her father. They wrote a book called Practical Education and their idea then was you should watch what the children are doing and offer them the next thing. Well, when we look particularly at Lady Middleton's children... (laughs) She's definitely following Rousseau. But she doesn't even think they're bad. She's just letting them go because everything they do she thinks is charming and entertaining and sweet and the people have to put up with it. It seems like any time they're paying calls, the children are down there, part of the family. How much time would she have really spent with them? And is that usual, to have them so much around, rather than packed off in the nursery? Well, it probably depended a bit, didn't it? Because, I mean, in some families, I think even in Jane Austen's, the children were sort of put out to be looked after in farmers' cottages, Mm. and they had nursemaids. But she certainly has them around at certain times. On that occasion, I think they come in after they've had dinner. Mm -hmm. The children are then brought in, and they stay till mm-hmm. after the tea has been served mm-hmm. and then they get sent off to bed but they're obviously there in the afternoons oh well I'll run back to a couple of memories I have from Jane Austen's life and what she knew now one child she saw quite a lot of was her little niece Anna who was a daughter of her eldest brother whose mother died when she was quite young and for sort of quite a number of years until he remarried she spent a lot of her time with her grandparents on and off till 1897 which what would Jane Austen have been coming up 25 in 1897 but this is another account of the little nephew the second son of her brother who changed his name to Knight. Well, she said certain interesting things about the little knights anyway. In 1796, she says that little Edward, who was born in 1794, was breached yesterday for good and all and was whipped into the bargain, which is a rather sad (laughs) So Breached means he was put into pants. Right. Which I think probably coincides with toilet training. Mm. They ran around in little skirts until they were toilet trained and then they could be put into trousers. But she also was really fond of the second one, George Knight. Well, when he was three, she wrote about him, I flatter myself that Itty Dordy will not forget me at least under a week. Kiss him for me. (laughs) And then at another time, she says about him, My sweet little George, I'm delighted to hear that he is such an inventive genius as to face-making. So she obviously admires some of the sort of tricks that were going on and encourages them. But the final thing she says about Itty Dordy, she says, My dear Itty Dordy's remembrance of me is very pleasing to me, foolishly pleasing, because I know it will be over so soon. My attachment to him will be more durable. I shall think with tenderness and delight on his beautiful and smiling countenance and interesting manner until a few years have turned him into an ungovernable and gracious fellow. (laughs) But I think that just sort of sums up her attitude to children. Mm. And that's basically what I thought I'd say about childhood. You've sort of got three places in this book where she is, I think, between somewhat and extremely critical of 
parental and grandparental attitudes towards their children. The first yeah. one is, of course, the criticism that the Dashwood family are left without their anticipated inheritance because old Mr Dashwood was entranced by little Henry. Yes. Which just seems a little unfair that all their support was ignored for, for yep. this charming little yeah. boy. Then you have the whole picture of Lady Middleton letting her children run wild and being so susceptible to the completely insincere flattery of the Steeles. Yes. But then there's also that scene later in the book where there's this argument about which child is taller. (laughs) The mothers are polite to one another and say, oh, yours is taller. But the grandmothers are really fierce. (laughs) The grandmothers say, mine's taller. I just love the way she presents that scene because only one of them is there. So they can't solve the question really easily. And yes, so both the mothers and the grandmothers are equally partial, but just less honest about it. Yes. She seems to be quite critical of this blind adoration of one's own children. Yes. Partiality to the exclusion of reality. Yes, just more partiality, really, yes. I think it's worth mentioning about Kitty Dordie, which can stop us feeling that she was so completely (laughs) anti-children that she, she indulged in some of the delights that these mothers got from their children. culture versions this week and particularly the film and tv adaptations one of the things i was thinking about is how they compress the time of both what we looked at last week and also what we looked at this week in the book there are basically three chapters at three different stages first where they meet the steels then at some unspecified time later lucy drops the bombshell about the engagement and then again an unspecified time probably later the same week Lucy and Eleanor have their follow-up conversation and then two months pass before they go to London. So it's quite a chunk of time, whereas in all of the adaptations, this is compressed, sometimes a lot compressed. When I was re-watching these bits, it was less than five minutes to watch the relevant segment. Well, actually, I mean, it isn't really very good in the book when you think there they've been spending all those two months visiting the steels every second day and how have they coped? Yes. So in both the 1971 miniseries and the 1981 miniseries, of course, being miniseries, they have a bit more time, you do have two encounters between Eleanor and Lucy. And in fact, interestingly, in both of those, Lucy actually visits Eleanor at the cottage to tell her the story of herself and Edward. By contrast, in the 1995 version, the whole thing happens in one evening that has Mr. and Mrs. Palmer being really funny and Lucy telling everything to Eleanor and then immediately following up on that is the invitation to go to London. So really compressed. The Palmers so are still the Steels arrive while the Palmers are there. The Steels and the Palmers have arrived simultaneously. But that also then made me think none of these adaptations really seem to show the passage of time because like Pride and Prejudice, this book takes place over around about a year. I haven't looked at an exact timetable of it. And the Pride and Prejudice adaptations, and I'm thinking not just the 1995 miniseries, which of course has plenty of time to play with, but also the 2005 movie, which of course has to be more compressed. They Mm. still look at the passage of time. They have the change of the seasons. You have in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice miniseries, you have some winter scenes. In 2005, they do a nice method of compressing 
time but still showing it passing by having a scene of Elizabeth sitting in a swing spinning herself around and you get this sort of montage of time passing yeah I'm not seeing that in these Sense and Sensibilities. Now, I do remember in the most recent miniseries, 2008, in the commentary they talked about the garden at Barton and depending on when they were shooting the scene, they had to have vegetables in or vegetables out. So they were trying to do it, but I'm still just not getting that same sense of passage of time. I don't know why, but I just thought it was an interesting difference from the Pride and Prejudice adaptations. Yes, Another difference between the 1971 and 1981 miniseries versions and then the two more recent, 1995 and 2008, in both 1971 and 1981, Lucy has that bit with Eleanor where she talks about can Eleanor convince her brother to give Edward the living? Whereas you don't have that in the later ones. Obviously, partly it's just they didn't have time to fit everything in. But I'm also wondering if partly it's a case of trying to remove any vestige of sympathy for Lucy because that is that's where your sympathies suddenly went to Lucy with the feeling that she cared she doesn't care about his emotional state but she does recognize that this is what he can do I'm going to support him in this yes and this is what he wants to do and well as we didn't quite say she's not making any unrealistic demands of him she's no. not asking him to do what he can't do mm. except give up Eleanor in these now what about the children are they crawling all over them and wrecking their belongings the children mostly aren't seen i think in 1971 they just didn't employ child actors at all yes in the later ones you don't really see the children much i think there might be one in the 1981 version where they're running around in 1995 the children are removed altogether because lady middleton has been removed from 1995 so there are no children Another removal from 1995 is Anne Steele. So you only have Lucy Steele in 1995, Uh which is, I I can see why she did it in terms of keeping the cast down and keeping it focused. It is a bit disappointing. Is Anne Steele in the others? Uh, Yeah, she is in all the others. It's just in 1995 she's been cut out. In 2008, they've got some beautiful visual things happening with the two Miss Steeles because the two of them look in some ways not dissimilar in the shape of their face and they have these set pieces where they're sitting side by side and one of them has her hair down her right shoulder and one has her hair down her left shoulder and they're both wearing similar sorts of clothes, a little bit busier than the Dashwood girls are wearing. That That's actually quite a trend. The Steele girls are often wearing busier clothes than the Dashwoods. But... Anne Steele, as she talks, she shows her teeth a lot. Yes. And that just somehow makes her look more vulgar than Lucy, who keeps her mouth closed. And I thought all of that worked beautifully well. What bothered me was her accent. She has, I guess you'd call it a mamazette accent. And Lucy has a very, very different accent. I can get that Lucy would be wanting to sound more refined. Yes. But the extreme amount of difference did seem a little odd to me. But the visuals of the two of them, I just thought, were spectacular. You know, when you mentioned about the clothes, the Steels probably do much more of making their own clothes. Mm. And the temptation to sort of cover bits that aren't as well cut. Whereas probably Marianne and Eleanor would be able to find perhaps just some local seamstress, but who's got a real flair. Yeah. They'd be able to afford that level up. Mm where they don't have to rely on their own drafting. Mm. Oh, one other thing that struck me in the 2008 version. You may remember I've talked about how 
it has much more dramatic scenery than any of the others. Well, the scene where Eleanor is on her own just reflecting on what Lucy has told her, that is in a cave with sort of bad weather happening outside. And I looked at that and I thought, that just looks like something out of the Brontes, except the Brontes don't really have the beach much. But nonetheless, it looked very gothic and romantic. But the sort of painting that Jane Eyre would have done. Yes, So I thought it was a bit over the top and very not Jane Austen, but then when I was listening to the commentary, apparently that wasn't what was planned, but it was pouring rain that day, (laughs) so they had to use this cave. That's the adaptations. Just a couple of brief comments about the modernisations, because, of course, one of the things the modernisations have to deal with is some of the things that are kind of period in approach, such as Edward's commitment to Lucy. Yes. Why does he not just drop her? And I really struggle with this in the two modernisations I've mostly been looking at. The web series Eleanor and Marianne Take Barton, it's all set at a university and Lucy has just gone after Edward. She's decided she wants to get him as her boyfriend. Yes. And then the whole relationship with Edward is completely out there and public. There's no secrecy at all. Something that was actually suggested by the podcast the austin archives is given that it's set in a university a much better setup that would have been both more effective and closer to the book would be to have edwin lucy having been boyfriend girlfriend at high school then they went to separate universities and they were trying to do a long distance relationship and edward wasn't talking about it maybe so that would have i think worked much much better than having lucy out to get edward but then It just goes completely screwy after that. But I think I'll talk about that in a later episode when we get to the matching bits of the plot. In the Joanna Trollope book, it has the same backstory of Edward having studied with Lucy's uncle and they met there from when they were very young. But it seems like the engagement has been much more recent, which feels, again, a little odd and unnecessary. One thing you do have in that is you do have Eleanor, as she does in... Jane Austen thinking through and realizing why Edward has got himself into this situation what the backstory was how he became entrapped by Lucy so she thinks through that in the same way that Eleanor does in Jane Austen again reflective of this is a very very close parallel to Austen yes it's trying very hard to hit all of the same plot points and structure while bringing it up to date I think the pop culture versions, they're all going to pick up a bit next time when we reach London and a lot more plot that can't be compressed starts happening. (laughs) We've had a comment from Marie who asked us, have you read Helena Kelly's book, Jane Austen, The Secret Radical? Her chapter on this novel I find to be extremely disturbing, especially her analysis of Brandon and Edward. Have you read it? Would you agree? There have been thousands of books and academic articles analysing every aspect of Jane Austen, and more are published every month. We've only read a tiny fraction of them, and we're not making a concerted effort to read all the latest stuff. So we're very open to suggestions. We don't want to pretend that any of our discussion may not be covering ground that has already been said, frequently better, by other people. It's just what we think reading the books and drawing on the commentaries we have come across. Thank you, Marie, for bringing this book to our attention. Helena Kelly is starting from the point that lots of people just see Austen as a romance writer. What they recognise is pretty young women, big houses, pride and prejudice, demure dramas in drawing rooms. And 
we both totally agree with her there that yes that is how lots of people see Austin and yes that makes us very annoyed yes because Austin is so much more than that yes and so many people have recognized this in the last couple of hundred years people like Sir Walter Scott saying what a serious novelist she was and more recently and one that I actually thought of when I was reading Helena Kelly is Robert Rohde's book The Bitch in the Bonnet because he's making the exact same point about people seeing Austen wrong his perspective is to look at Austen primarily as a satirist and he goes through all the books doing that the approach that Helena Kelly takes is she believes that Jane Austen held radical rather than conservative views and that because society was so conservative, Jane Austen did not feel she could openly express these views in her books, but she encoded them in a way that readers of the time would identify, but readers today don't. And on that basis, Helena Kelly is looking at the context in which it was written, which is kind of one of the things we're doing. And I will certainly say that Kelly makes some interesting points and parallels, but we don't always agree with her. The sort of thing I see as an example is she makes a big point writing about Pride and Prejudice to say it is very critical of the army. And she goes through a whole lot of criticisms of the army and shows you can find those in Pride and Prejudice. And says, Jane Austen saw all this and she put them in Pride and Prejudice because she was a radical and she thought the army should be reformed. And our point is, yes, she made these comments, but there is no evidence at all that she took a radical view of the army and believed it should be reformed. What I think is you can absolutely have a radical reading of Austen. You can absolutely say... This book demonstrates these things were wrong with society. There are examples of it in these books. The question is how far you can imply a radical intention in what she was writing. And I think that's where we take issue with Helena Kelly because we don't think she wanted to change society, but she was certainly very strong on people individually within the way society works, people individually being themselves, being true to themselves, getting education, speaking their minds when necessary, laughing at people, all that sort of thing that maybe a strict conservative view wouldn't take. So I guess that is our big difference with Helena Kelly. Now, what exactly she means by radical, maybe we will come back to that in a later episode. And also, I think we will come back to her contention that Sense and Sensibility is overall a criticism of primogeniture. But What we'd really like to address now is her analysis of Brandon, which so disturbed Marie. We'll we'll also hold off on her analysis of Edward until we're discussing him in more detail. And Willoughby. Why she thinks Brandon is just like Willoughby. Yep. She has two main criticisms of Colonel Brandon. Firstly, she theorises that he is meant to be the father of young Eliza. And secondly, she criticises the fact that he isn't giving any of his estate to her. So her feeling about Eliza's parentage is based on her view that when he tells his story to Eleanor, he is lying. And as far as I can tell, her main evidence for the fact that she believes he is lying is the unsavoury reputation of soldiers in the Indies, which you may remember Michael talked about, and also the fact that the timeline doesn't quite work because there's a lack of clarity on whether he was in the Indies for three years or for five years. 
And if it's only three years, then he could be Eliza's father. Well, firstly, if there is a lack of clarity, and there are some things that are maybe a little bit fuzzy, I think it's far more likely that this is a mistake than that Austin encoded it so deeply that most people miss it. And I also think, and this again came up when Michael was talking about the unsavory reputation of soldiers from the Indies, that him being a liar, him reflecting that unsavory reputation seems rather at odds with the way his character is presented elsewhere in the book. So I was going to go through exactly the timeline issues and how they can be resolved, but that is, I think, far too complicated. Also, we both had goes at it, and we've come to an agreement. It would take a long time to talk it through. So basically, I've written this up, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes, but the short answer is, while it is theoretically possible he could be young Eliza's father, it is equally more than possible that his story is as he told it. Yes. But moving on to her other criticism, she says that it never seems to enter Colonel Brandon's head that perhaps he ought to be saving up as much money as he can to give to his ward to replace in some measure the fortune which was effectively stolen from her mother and used to prop up the estate. And then later on, she questions whether Marianne can ever really be happy with a man who, if he doesn't quite steal the bread out of the mouths of his daughter and granddaughter, is happy to enrich himself from the fortune which morally ought to belong to his female relations. Now, she is using the word morally in connection to this way society works, and I feel that that is putting a 20th century perspective on it. I actually agree with her. It is unconscionable that this money of Eliza's propped up the Brandon estate and she was left destitute. But that was the way it worked then and I don't see Jane Austen deliberately criticising that. I don't feel that the subtext is strong enough to say it is a criticism of that. There's clear criticism of how Brandon's father and brother behaved to Eliza, but what I'm not getting a sense of is any radical criticism of the social structure that made this behaviour possible. I feel that there is nothing to show that Colonel Brandon was not going to repay it. He admitted that they should not have taken that money from Eliza. And there is nothing to suggest that he isn't going to do his absolute best to repay it to Eliza's daughter and in her child. He's already given Eliza a gentlewoman's upbringing. Yes. He doesn't send her to a seminary, but he does have her come to Delaford. Yes, he's not apprenticing her out like Mrs Jennings said he should. He is bringing her up to be a member of the gentry, not a lesser person. The way he's been treating her up till now, if he followed that way, he would be getting together a certain amount of money, which would be her endowment for her when she turned 21 to support her if he died to go with her as a marriage settlement but we don't even know that he isn't planning in his will to leave to young Eliza part of the estate we don't know all we know is that he's on this trajectory that would end up with her being an independent propertied woman with a good trust that is looking after her. Maybe not everything her mother had, but not nothing either. She is basically being treated as if she was a daughter of the house. Yes. It doesn't say he is, but it doesn't say he isn't. And I think if we were meant to be making the assumption that he isn't, there would have been a bit more evidence to the fact that he isn't, 
rather yeah. than an absence of, of more evidence that well, he is. Well, just putting this trajectory of what you do when you have to look after a young woman. Mm. Okay, so to finish up, thank you, Marie, for bringing this book to our attention. We are enjoying reading it. We are enjoying disagreeing with it. <laughs> and we will certainly be referencing it again in later episodes, particularly when we're talking about Edward and when we're talking about Willoughby. You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, and me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 26 to 31 of Sense and Sensibility. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.